1978, I graduated from the University of Illinois with a degree in landscape architecture. Shortly afterwards, God redirected my career path. I took a hard right turn uh, from working in a family landscape business here in Peoria, the hair nursery, to plant and pastor a church in Champaign, Illinois. And at times feeling very ill-equipped for this frequently challenging vocation, I entertained the notion of returning to school uh, for more education to get an MDiv or on a particularly discouraging day to get my Master's of Architecture. (laughs) But I never sensed that either was quite the right decision. And so just through the years, I took advantage of a number of uh, continuing education opportunities. I've attended Walt Disney's Creative Leadership Seminar just last week, the uh, Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit that's hosted here in Northwoods, I'm a graduate of the two-year Vineyard Leadership Institute. But I feel like over the last several weeks, I've kind of been re-enrolled in the School of the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this school, it's like this. There's no tuition. There are no buildings. There's no campus, per se. In fact, you don't really apply to get in. Rather, God drafts you, regardless of your resume or your transcript, There's one curriculum, and it's personal and spiritual growth towards Christ-likeness, that is, more fully following Jesus. And the teacher is the Holy Spirit, and he comes to followers of Jesus in a variety of ways and gently but firmly says, I'm the boss, you're not, and I don't change. Now, this last week, Jeff Mills, our worship team director, launched a brand new series of sermons titled, What is Worship? And if you missed his message, that was titled, One True God, Freedom from Idolatry, I would really encourage you to go to our website or to uh, iTunes and get the podcast. They're available 20 minutes after every Sunday sermon, and you can uh, get the message and engage in that which you missed. But... uh Go there. Listen to it uh, if you weren't able to, to be here with us. I feel that last week the Holy Spirit drafted the Vineyard Church Peoria into his school with Jeff's message. I realized I've got some growing up to do. I've, I was challenged in that way. And today we're going to continue to explore uh, worship by asking what it means to be fully surrendered and finding our life by losing it. So let's pray. Lord, we're, we're just grateful for this brand new day. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for love. Thank you that you are good all the time, even when the circumstances of our life may scream otherwise. Thank you for your grace to dispense your love and your goodness and your power and your mercy in our lives at just the right time in the ways you know we need. We pray that you'd put power on your word to our lives We thank you for the opportunity to authentically connect with other people, not just in this room, Lord, but even right next door in Vineyard Kids. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach and train and equip our young ones to experience real life in your kingdom from their youth. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We say, as students in your school, come today, have your way. You are the instructor. Put grace in our lives to receive it in your name. Amen. 
Every human being wonders about a lot of things, but several questions everyone must answer are these. Is there a God? And if there is, what is he or she or it like? Thirdly, what does God want or expect? And fourthly, what is the nature of my relationship to God? Now, last May, and then again last week, Jeff began answering these questions with two messages. And we learned that the Bible reveals there is one true and living God. He is the central figure of the Bible's sweeping story from eternity past to eternity future. And that he is the one before whom all people in every culture from every age will one day kneel before. And then last week, we also learned that everybody worships. This is how God has actually made us. And God intends that we worship him. That is, the created worships the creator. But we also learned that as part of a fallen race, sadly, we all worship the wrong things. Uh, And Jeff shared with us how this is idolatry. Idolatry is the root of all sin because it turns us away from the one true and living God towards ourselves. Now, in the Old Testament Bible stories, idols tend to be man-made objects of gold or silver or wood or stone. And while this remains true in some of the more primitive cultures in the two-thirds world today, Uh, The idols that we worship in the Western world are a little more subtle. Uh, They are the things or the potential that those things offer uh, that we value and trust more than the one true and living God. I find this to be very challenging. Now, I could have just passed through the subject to date in a more academic fashion, and I I could read the the text that we're going to look at in a moment and provide an engaging message for us all to 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 have uh, and 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 then leave, but that would have allowed me to hide about how I'm wrestling with these challenging truths to keep it from all of you, and so I just I'm going to tell you in the spirit of transparency and disclosure, I've found that I'm not yet fully worshiping the one true and living God because I'm not yet free from idolatry. I so appreciated Jeff's level checking, I love that word, at the start of his message last week. And and he said, and I want to repeat today, that there is today no shame, no blame, no guilt, no condemnation, no judgment in what I'm sharing. Don't own inappropriately something that God doesn't intend. You see, we are all in on this message. Uh, it, and, and because there's a level check that this isn't, uh, you know, about what God is doing someone else, but, but about me, it, it gives us all permission to own our own issues and not be distracted with wondering, you know, how so-and-so is dealing with theirs. So you can look to your left or your right right now and know that you're not, you're not going to be concerned about how he or she is dealing with idolatry. This is about you being enrolled in the school of the Holy Spirit. Okay, he's the teacher. You're, we're all the students. 
sometimes my idols are just the wrong things. The idols of unbelief, worry, and anxiety tempt me uh, when I doubt that Jesus is really good, if his promises are true, if he's really going to come through for me and my kids and my family and our church family. The idol of lust tempts me to violate my relationship with my wife by imagining myself with someone else. And the idol of discouragement tempts me when I dwell with ungratefulness on how life has actually turned out. Like, well, what if I'd done thus and so, or made that decision, or or did this, or did that, instead of how it worked? These thoughts can occupy a place in my mind and life that they shouldn't occupy. They usurp God's rightful place, and in that sense, they become an idol, the wrong thing. But sometimes my idols are good things in excess. Greed and covetousness. I desire bigger and better of the stuff that I already have, or I covet what I don't have. The ability to travel the world or own a vacation home on the beaches of Lake Michigan or, you know, a big fat 401k retirement plan. Now, God's promise of material provision to meet all of our needs for food, clothing, health, and shelter, uh, that's a good thing. But when it runs amok, then it becomes an idol. That's one of those that I have, good things in excess. But quite honestly, when I drill down, perhaps one of the biggest idols that I've wrestled with most of my adult life has been workaholism and all of its friends. Now, hard work is good. It's honorable. And according to the Bible, it is rewarded. For instance, Proverbs 14.23, all hard work brings a profit. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 tell us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. So hard work is good. Hard work is honorable. Hard work is rewarded. But good things in excess can become an idol. And so when I, me, when I begin to identify, find my identity and and my significance in my work, or when I work hard so that others will think well of me, or when I'm compelled to work because I think that God is most pleased in me when I work hard, then work which is good becomes an idol. And this is the idol that I've probably wrestled with most of my adult life. Now, I began collecting my thoughts on this message several weeks ago, as Jeff and uh, Lori Hensold and uh, and I began to plan and prepare. Uh, so this was two weeks ago, Tuesday. I actually began to to collect my thoughts and work the text. I set the entire day every Tuesday of every week aside for preparation. Well, the very next Wednesday, the pastor's prayer group, of which I'm a part, that's a group of about 30 men and women from Lots of different denominations that gather at Bradley Epworth United Methodist Church at 9 o'clock every Wednesday. It's uh, led by my really good friend Tom Eckhart, the senior pastor of that church. He asked us that morning 
in our spirit of self-disclosure and prayer ministry for one another. Uh, well, what day do you take off? And quite candidly, I couldn't answer because I don't take a day off. I'm not proud of that. I was embarrassed that morning to actually share because I've just now read Jeff's message on Tuesday about idolatry. Good things run amok. And honestly, in my 38 years as a, as a pastor, I have never taught on the Sabbath because I don't feel I have a shred of personal integrity in teaching about it. Now, I could academically tell you you all ought to, <laughs> but what good does that do when, when the messenger isn't living the message that, that uh, reeks of uh, insincerity? So then 3 a.m. the next Thursday morning, our carbon monoxide alarms went off, blazing in the house, you know, and you jolt out of a sound sleep and your heart's racing at about 140 beats a minute. I searched through the house, and uh, I could not find, after even examining the alarms, any electromechanical dysfunction on why they went off. The windows were open. I thought maybe a, a waft of carbon monoxide went through the house. And <laughs> We live next door to a cow pasture, but, you know, I, I think that's methane, not monoxide. I don't know. And so upon returning to bed, my heart racing, you know, trying to like peel back now, I, I just began to pray. Uh, and almost immediately this thought comes to my mind. Carbon monoxide is uh, an odorless, tasteless gas that can kill you. So workaholism is an idol that can kill you. Now, I'm not suggesting that every thought that enters our mind is from God, far from it. But I am suggesting that when you pray and you direct your thoughts deliberately and consciously to God, then God will often speak to us in the ways that he created us, through our imaginations, through our heart, through our minds, through our spirit, through the hunches that we're imagining, through our capacity to actually have a memory. That's how God works. You cannot just dismiss it as, well, that was just me, or that was coincidence. No, that's how God works when we pray. He's working with what he made in us. That's how he communicates. So don't automatically just dismiss those thoughts after you direct your mind and heart to God in, in seeking a, a, an answer or a question. So laying there in bed that Thursday morning, it was as if God was using Jeff's teaching, Pastor Tom's question, and my, my dysfunctional carbon monoxide monitor to sound to me a life-threatening alarm. And hopefully, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you last week, this week, about the idols in your life. You'll read phrases scattered all the way through the New Testament. Flee from idolatry. And we're not just to dismiss that to the, to the, the people to whom the original authors were, were being written to as if they were bowing down before idols of wood and, and gold and silver and stone. The message today is the idols that we have are much more subtle, the wrong things or good things in excess. And I hope that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about the idols in your life, 
that, that keep you or inhibit you or, or limit you from fully worshiping the one true and living God. Jeff concluded his message last week by encouraging all of us to ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light on the idols in our life. I've found he's been shining the beacon and waking me up at 3 a.m. in the morning to remind me. He certainly did that for me. What about you? No shame, no blame, no guilt, no judgment, no looking to your left or right wondering, well, how is he or she working this out? Shine the light inside, Holy Spirit. Jeff also suggested that we humble ourselves and ask others to pray. So in response, at the conclusion of today's service, when we ask for people to come up, I'm going to be the first one and ask several others in a spirit of humility and brokenness to pray for me. I want to get out from underneath idolatry. I want my life to fully count for worshiping Jesus. And I encourage you to do the same. So what else then do we do? Well, thankfully, we aren't left alone to just try to figure it out on our own. The authors of the New Testament give us insight into dethroning the rivals to God's authority in our lives. So if you have your Bible, open it up to the, the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, or click on your Bible app to, Revel, uh, to, to Romans chapter 12, where we read the first two verses. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Now, just parenthetically, I know Charles Spurgeon said, never interrupt the reading of the text to contextualize, but I'm going to like violate what Charles Spurgeon once said. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is addressing these incredibly vast and sweeping themes about God's sovereignty and election and predestination and human responsibility and our place in the sweeping story, the meta-narrative of God, and how God's had mercy on the majority of us who are Gentiles of non-Jewish faith, to draft us into God's family. And then Paul says, therefore, in view of all that I just wrote in the last 11 chapters about how big God is and how small we are and the spot that we occupy in the sweeping story, he says, therefore, and so, dear brothers and sisters, let's pick it up. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I really like how Eugene Peterson translates verse 1 in the message translation of the Bible. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So the one true and living God wants us to take our life, our sleeping, eating, going to work and school, going grocery shopping and doing laundry and walking around everyday ordinary life and completely offer it up to God. And the text in Romans uh, 1 and 2 tells us why. This is truly the way to worship him. Other translations of that text would read, this kind of worship is appropriate or reasonable for you. 
Another reads, this is the true worship that you should offer. This is the worship it is right for you to give. So to fully surrender our lives to God is the way that we truly worship Him. Now, interestingly, the Apostle Paul uses the language of sacrifice. Did you catch that? Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, he said. Language with which his audience would have fully identified, but the force of which largely escapes readers today. And here's why. In the custom of the Jewish sacrificial system, innocent animals were offered as sacrifices on the behalf of guilty sinners. A bull or a goat or a lamb or a dove was killed, its throat was slit, the blood was drained, and then sprinkled on the altar. And in this sense, an innocent animal gave its life for a guilty sinner. The biblical concept is atonement or covering of sin. In this symbolic act, very real for the animal, very symbolic for the sinner, In this symbolic act, a a guilty sinner was forgiven as uh, uh, the blood of the innocent sacrifice covered its guilt and sin. And Paul's audience would have known that a sacrifice, if it was anything, was dead. And so Paul stretches the metaphor to say we're to be a living sacrifice. He's using an obvious play on words to arrest the attention of the audience or the reader today. Living would have indicated that it's not a one-time event, as in a once-for-all decision to kill the animal or once-for-all decision to worship God. Rather, it's a continual daily experience. And we're to be a sacrifice, and a sacrifice is Dead. Well, then, to what are we to be dead? Uh, well, anything in our life that would would cause us to value and trust uh, uh, the the object or, or what it offers more than Jesus. Anything that distracts us from full surrender and devotion to the one true and living God. Anything that competes for God's supremacy in our life. Any idol that is the wrong thing for me: unbelief, anxiety, lust, and discouragement, or a good thing in excess, greed, covetousness, and workaholism. And the Apostle Paul is saying, surrender that thing, that desire, that action, that thought, that deed. We're to no longer look to that thing or what it offers to give life. We're to be dead to them. You see, dead people have no idols. Dead people no longer want what they don't have. Dead people no longer have a stubborn, independent, self-centered spirit that wants to live life on its own terms and for its own pleasure. Thank you very much. Dead people don't find their identity and significance in things or people or family or work or education or even church work or recreation or leisure or food or sex or porn or shopping or videos or, or working out or any other of a thousand idols. Dead people don't find their significance and value there. We are to be a living sacrifice. And so this everyday lifestyle of full surrender to God is real worship. That's the worship we're called to offer. 
Now, Jesus described this real worship with very similar language in all four Gospels, but we're going to read the text recorded by Mark in Mark's Gospel, the eighth chapter. Mark chapter eight, if you want to flip there, scroll there. We're going to read Mark eight, beginning in verse 34 to 35. Then calling the crowds to join his disciples, he, Jesus, said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, the gospel, you will save it. So Jesus' call is to turn from our selfish ways and lose or give up our life for his sake. And he says, when we do, we will find it. So Jesus' call is to fully surrender our life to him as well. Now, so what does that mean? Like, literally, like, give up our literal life? I mean, we have to still work and eat and sleep and go to school and do laundry and cook and pay the bills and mow our grass and buy groceries and keep the cars running? Like, we can't just stop doing all of that. That can't mean what he means, right? Like, give up that life. We have a life. What does he mean? He can't mean just, like, stop doing life, move to the mountains in Montana and, you know, eat wild berries and tree bark. (laughs) I think that to fully surrender our life means that we give up that selfish, self-centered way that we look to to provide our identity and significance and security. We give up our dreams and desires and wishes to the degree that they compete with a full surrender to the one true and living God. We give up our, our ideas and schemes for sanctifying all that we want selfishly and passing it off somehow as God's will for our life. And that takes deliberate, intentional examination. So we give up all the things, the idols, in which we think we'll find life, and we embrace God's desires for our lives the best that we can possibly discern them. We give up our life to find His. And Jesus said, if you seek to hold on to your life, the things in which we think we're going to find life, then you're actually going to lose it. So the idea of placing Jesus at the center of our sleeping, eating, going to work and school, doing grocery shopping and laundry, walking around everyday ordinary life. That is real worship. Our whole life lived in love with and in obedience to Jesus, who is at the center. I really like how Dallas, the late Dallas Willard suggests in his outstanding book, The Divine Conspiracy, that followers of Jesus think of the concept of being fully surrendered like this, and I quote, How would Jesus live my life if he were me? How would Jesus live my life if he were me? My sleeping, eating, going to work and school, doing grocery shopping, doing laundry, walking around everyday ordinary life. How would Jesus live it? Now, perhaps two illustrations will help shed a little light. I've shared these with our church family before. Bear with me if you've seen them, but they're worth repeating. The first diagram shows a compartmentalized view of life. 
where our relationship with Jesus, in the black letters, or Jesus and his church, is but one of many slices of the pie of life. Family, marriage and kids, work, recreation and leisure, hobbies, education, and uh, your future plans, and a few others. It depends on how many slices of your pie you have. But worship is relegated to one slice, you know, perhaps an hour a week on maybe two out of four Sundays per month, perhaps an occasional giving of the offering when the notion strikes, an occasional reading of the Bible, and certainly praying as needs and crisis arise. But after these expressions, we pretty much live the slices of the pie of our life on our own terms and for our own pleasure, our selfish ways. And... We look to all these slices of life as the source of identity and significance and security. There's our life, all chopped up and divided, and that's that's where we find life. And Jesus said, if you cling to that, you're actually going to lose it. That's not the source of life. The second diagram illustrates what I've called an integrated view of life, where our relationship with Jesus, full surrender to him, the giving up of our life is actually touching every area, and it informs and shapes and influences every aspect, every decision, every action. And that doesn't mean you're never going to have any fun or can't take a vacation. That's not what it means at all. It just means that Jesus at the center defines our character and our conduct and our behavior and our choices and our actions and our reactions the things we value, the things in which we invest our time, energy, and money, and he's fully integrated into every sphere of life. That's what it means to fully worship. There's no distinction between sacred and secular, between public and private, between work and and home, between faith and life. There's no compartmentalizations of life where, well, we get to do as we please with this. No compartmentalization. All pieces of the pie of life are fully surrendered to Jesus the King and His kingdom. And we live our life as if Jesus, uh, we live our life as Jesus would if He were us. And I believe that's where we find real life. That's where we find the life, John 10, 10, where Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have an abundant life. And when we give up our life, because Jesus is at the center of every slice of the pie of our life, I think that's when we are most fully satisfied. We are full of joy. We have the the greatest sense of deep contentment. I didn't say that we necessarily are having the most fun. Because to frame, uh, like, are we doing life as fun, it completely misses the biblical narrative. It's not about having fun. It's about a deep sense of joy, peace, love, contentment, and satisfaction because we are fully surrendered to Jesus. That's where we find real life. So fully surrendering to Jesus and his rule is what real worship is all about. Living a life of every day choosing Jesus. A lifestyle of giving up our selfish, independent, stubborn spirit and embracing his. A daily lifestyle of saying something like this. Jesus, my life today is yours to do with what you want. Jesus, you are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and shape me. Jesus, I'm all in. 
I'm the lump of clay on your wheel. I'm all in. Shape me, mold me, use me. Now, this is not just a response for pastors or missionaries or people who earn their living at a full-time religious organization, because that would exclude the 99.9% of all of you and all the church, for that matter. And and most of you will never earn your living from a a church or a missionary organization or, you know, a 501c3. So, So then what does it look like? It's a great question. Well, it looks like singles and marrieds and married agains and students and young adults and middle-agers and seasoned gray hairs and architects and engineers and computer programmers and nurses and doctors and PAs and uh, uh, teachers and managers and stay-at-home dads and moms and men and women of the trades and food service and working in retail and business owners and retirees and currently unemployed people all making the conscious and willful decision every day to fully surrender to Jesus as we live in the three neighborhoods of where we work, where we live, and where we do life. That's what it looks like. Living together in vital relationship, known as the church. So, let me wrap up this section by by just suggesting how we can more fully cooperate with the school of the Holy Spirit, give up our life, and find real life. First thing I'm going to do is urge you to come over the next several weeks as Jeff Mills and Lori Hensold unpack the next several steps in this life of worship. But I'm going to suggest then first that you be intentional. I love what Dallas Willard says, and I quote, We become a life student of Jesus by deciding. That is to say, no one ever drifts into a a lifestyle of full surrender and worship. You don't just like float accidental like on a breeze to get there. You have to be intentional. We have to make a decision that God knows best and that this is a life worth pursuing. Now, the beautiful and terrifying thing about God giving us the ability to choose is that we are free. Jesus invites us to experience real life, but he doesn't force us. He will allow us to continue to eat the fruit of our idolatry. He doesn't force us. So we have to be intentional. Secondly, I want to remind you that any transformation in our lives starts with changing the way you think. Our belief systems, the things that we accept as true, are the rails upon which the rest of our life runs. What we believe about life and love and relationships and work and finances and sexuality and attitudes and sin and church and the poor, leisure and honesty, everything really. What we believe about that stuff determines what we do. Because you do what you believe. You don't do what you prefer. You'll always do what you really believe. And that's why the text in Romans 12 reads, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Transformation begins with changing our beliefs. And since followers of Jesus are to have biblical beliefs, we are asking the Holy Spirit to align our thinking with the Word of God, where we discover the truth that real life comes by actually giving up our own. 
that that to worship God means we fully surrender our dreams and our desires and our goals and our plans for life to the degree they're not aligned with His. That that Jesus actually wants us to, to live an integrated, not compartmentalized life. And that the life of surrender is actually beneficial and leads us to true contentment, true joy, true peace, true settledness. So I'm personally right now being challenged, invited by the Holy Spirit in a school to change my thinking on my, uh, 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 with regard to my idols uh, about work and identity, significance. So I'll just share. Here's how it works for me. I, I have to, uh, even now after 38 years as a Christ follower, renew my thinking that the Sabbath is good and necessary. I hear the Holy Spirit asking me, why do you, Ben, think that you know more about uh, 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 the kind of rhythm that's necessary for health and life than God knows? Oh. <clears throat> Guilty, Lord. You see, when, when, when I choose to, to, to deny what God says is right and good, then I usurp his place. That's a rival to his authority in my life. God says the rhythm of our life ought to have a, a rhythm of balance. Six, work six, take one off. Then, as, as demonstrated by the, the nation of Israel, they took three feasts a year. So that means our life needs to be punctuated with a rhythm of some kind of regular break from the, from the routine of life, uh, uh, work. And I'm like, oh God, why, why do I think that, why do I persist in thinking that I know more than you about what rhythm is necessary for a healthy life? I'm sorry. Secondly, the Sabbath requires faith. I have to trust Jesus to build his church here in Peoria for the six days that I work as its pastor. And that's it. And if I, if I begin to, to feel like, well, Jesus, there's just more work than I, than I can manage, I have to realize, nope, Jesus never gives any of us more work than we can handle. And so if I'm feeling that way, which I do a, a lot, then it means something's wrong with me, not with Jesus. And I have to, like, that, that takes me, uh, it takes a, a trust, a, a willingness to, to actually exercise faith that I can trust him. Thirdly, I have to realize that my significance comes because of my identity as God's son and him as my father, not because of my hard work. Nothing I do or I don't do can change God the Father's full and complete acceptance of me right now. Dang, that's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? It is for me. Nothing I do or don't do will cause God to love me any more or any less than he does right now. No performance. My identity is in Jesus and being his son, not my performance as a hard worker and a hard pastor hardworking pastor. Now, in some cases, we need the help of others to identify what our beliefs or idols are. We need the help of others who can offer us feedback. That's why we value relationships in the vineyard. In the context of love and understanding, we can hold the mirror up to one another, not in any blame, shame, guilt, judgment, or condemnation, but because we, we value and love one another. Sometimes we need the power tools of the Holy Spirit, his gifts of the word of wisdom and word of knowledge and prophecy, because there are things neither one of us knows, and only the Holy Spirit through revelation can reveal what it is we need. And that's why we value prayer ministry and inviting the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our times of worship, in our in our uh, prayer ministry at the conclusion of the service, and then in our small groups and the rhythm of daily life together, why we always are welcoming the Holy Spirit 
with his gifts, because there's a lot of things we just don't know. And then when he reveals, we repent. Repent is, the, is, is, is to give up the things we, we now discover is not the truth. It means we change the way we think. That's what the word repentance in the Bible means. It's not necessarily accompanied with emotion, although it certainly can be. But it means we stop, we turn around, and give up what was either irrational or unbiblical to embrace a new view of truth. We change the way we think. So I say, Holy Spirit, thank you for continuing to shed your light on my unbiblical and irrational belief systems. Those belief systems, those idols that promise what they cannot ever deliver. Thank you for exposing these idols, the bad things or the good things gone awry, that have demanded too much from me and promised what they cannot ever deliver. I'm sorry, Lord. Break the power of idols in my life. And then I confess to others, as I'm doing to you today, because we're only as sick as the secrets we keep from one another. Once we expose that thing to the light, then the power of God can begin to go to work. So to fully worship We are intentional. Secondly, we change the way we think. And then lastly, I want to encourage you to just surrender your sleeping, eating, going to work and school and walking around everyday life to Jesus at the start of every day. I worship by placing Jesus at at the center, his kingdom rule, at the center of my life. Now, the word that's most commonly used for worship in the entire New Testament means to, to bow, to fall prostrate, and to come towards and kiss the hand of. In this sense, worship is an attitude of intimacy that is expressed. It's something we do. It's not just something we think. And so every day we actually do surrender. Jesus, how would you live my life today if you were me? And then we take the necessary steps to rearrange the affairs of our life in order to do it. We ask the Holy Spirit. He is the helper to change our behaviors, attitudes expressed. And we say, uh, Lord, help me today, do what Ephesians instructs, to throw off the old sinful nature and former way of life, and instead, let the Holy Spirit renew my thoughts and attitudes and put on the new nature that's created in God to be like Christ. And so for me, what that means is, you know, with God's help, I'll start to take a day off. I'll set reasonable boundaries about how much work I do in the evenings and on the weekends. And whether I'm receiving praise or critique, on, on the mountaintop or in the valley, in terms of my job as leading this flock, I'll do the best job I can following Jesus and pastoring the flock, and then I'm going to trust the results to him. Okay, friends. Well, I've been in the school of the Holy Spirit for 38 years now, and while his curriculum can be difficult and challenging, sometimes extremely painful, and while you never want to repeat a grade, I hope to pass every test and get promoted And I want to encourage all of us to uh, lean into being that living sacrifice and losing our life in order to find the real life of love and joy and peace that Jesus promises. Let's go on the journey together. Next week, Jeff is going to continue by offering us some helpful perspective on what our vineyard heritage offers by way of this understanding and practice. Lord, Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you just didn't leave us alone to be fending for life after we found you, but you draft us into your school, then you invite us to surrender our life in order that we might find real life. And I don't think that's just a platitude or an empty promise, Lord. I believe that's the truth. And today, Lord, you're inviting all of our church family, wherever we're at in the journey, to 
to surrender more fully and completely, to live the life of worship, to put you back in the center of, of the throne where you belong in our life. And God, the beauty of the Holy Spirit is that you can take one message and apply it to the 80 people that are here in the ways that you know each one of us needs. Bless that Holy Spirit. And Lord, now as we offer to you our, our, our gifts and the offering, uh, we pray that you would use these uh, for what they are, the intentions of, of our heart to communicate that we love you. Bless the gifts. Bless those, Lord, who desire to give, but their life circumstances don't allow it. Bless them with provision and new jobs and better jobs in order to steward that blessing in that way. And then, Lord, receive our, our, our songs, the intention of our heart. Our prayer in your name. Amen.